Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. With the massive change in the government of the United States about to take place, I take this opportunity to share with you the views of my longtime friend, Sam Farr, who is retiring after 23 and a half years as a member of Congress. Sam represented the Monterey and Santa Cruz area of the central coastline of California. About 80 miles south of San Francisco, this is one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world. Sam Farr and I visited by telephone from his home in Monterey County on December 19, 2016. That day was his first full day at home with no further responsibilities as a member of Congress since June 1993 when he was first elected. While in office, Sam flew across the country twice a week for seven out of every eight weeks. We began this conversation when I asked him for his reflections on the changes in Congress between when he first arrived there and the current time. Further in our program, we discuss what the nation might expect under the presidency of Donald Trump, sanctuary cities, identity cards, health care, and social security. We begin with his reflections on the changes in Congress. out of Washington, D.C. that is so true. And if, if there's a political lesson, it is in this phrase, all politics is local. Every member of Congress, 435 of them, plus the delegates from the different territories, are elected by districts. And in essence, it's, uh, the Congress is one big, huge county supervisors association. Uh, because you're worried about your district, that holds your contract, that's how you get there. Uh, getting sworn in is how you get your paycheck, your office, your staff, and the authority to do your business, uh, which is to legislate. And there's two things you do as a lawmaker. You make laws, and the country cannot operate without a plan authorized in law, uh, and you decide how much money the government's going to be able to spend. So the I like to say the president is the chief administrative officer of the United States, and Congress is the board of directors. But that Congress, remember, comes from these local districts. And so what you see in this country is what has really changed is that the hot-button social issues, abortion, gay rights, what we used to say, God, guns, and gays, they were sort of philosophical issues when I first got there. They've become political measuring sticks uh, in these different districts of, of the country. Every member of Congress knows the people back home got them elected. So the country is, is changed uh, by not essentially allowing people to go to Congress and delegate to them the responsibility of really doing in-depth research and then making your decision, and that the majority rules. Now they hold their legislators to strict requirements that they cannot vote for this or cannot vote for that or must vote for this or must vote for that. And so, as you saw in this election, 
that we do really have a different nation than we had 10 years ago. So, yes, you get phone calls um, from presidents to, you know, please support my proposal. I remember Obama trying to create a, a, a bombing program on Syria, and essentially the nation pushed back. And even though he probably had the intellectual uh, rationale to what he wanted to do, he just didn't have the support of the people of this country. They were tired of war. And they push back on their legislators and saying, don't you dare uh, vote for that. The Probably the most fought and difficult vote to cast, there's several of them in the 23 years I've been there, but I think the, the uh, Health Care Act, the Obamacare Affordable Care Act, it's been called, was the most difficult because only Democrats would vote for it. And many of those promised their districts that they wouldn't. So to go back on a district promise is just um, almost, you know, almost impossible. So let's talk about the Affordable Health Care Act. What uh, do you anticipate happening if Trump is able to rescind it? First of all, uh, I don't think he understands anything about health care and the delivery of health care. It's not that complicated, but we've never done a very good job in this nation of really explaining it because it's all private. So what we do in the Obamacare, it's a very Republican idea, a very capitalist idea. We require that everybody in the nation has to own a private insurance policy. The government doesn't tell the insurance companies what they have to sell it at or what the price. So we don't control price or choice, but you've got to have one. That was the way to get everybody covered and to get everybody paid for when they do go and get services. I don't think he can just repeal that. The system of financing health care is pretty embedded into this. And if you did such a radical recall, you're going to drive up prices. You're going to throw all these people off insurance. And I don't think that's very good policy at all. You're going to have chaos. So I think as he understands the ingredients of it, I think he'll want to change the name and he'll tweak it. I think he just wants to get rid of the name Obamacare and call it Trump Care or something, you know. So I don't think it's going to be radically changed. Again, the bottom line is the Congressional Budget Office estimated that over 10 years, uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare would save this nation about $2.2 trillion. So if he gets rid of it, you, you break the bank. And I don't think he can do that. So how about Medicare? Well, Medicare, because of the Affordable Care Act, has reduced its cost. Costs have come down. And so it is not as close to bankruptcy as it was uh, many years ago. To suggest that you just sort of have a... Uh, 401k for Medicare, I think, is it will never pass muster. Uh, Bush tried to change Medicare and he and Social Security, and he was unsuccessful at it because, again, back to that initial comment that all politics being local, is that even in Republican districts, senior citizens um, don't want government to mess around with their <laughs> with their government-sponsored Medicare. What I've noticed about Washington, it's very hard to change things in Washington. All the lobbyists are there, as you know, to essentially protect the status quo. They've been able to get their advantage in law, and uh, what they don't want to do is have that change taken away. Would that analysis also apply, in your opinion, to uh, Social Security? I don't think Social Security is broken. Probably the most rational thing to do, it's a tax increase, and that's the problem you have with the Republicans who pledge they'll never vote for anything that relates to a tax increase, is that we have a cap on 
payments to Social Security with about $120,000 a year income. The way I point it out is that my salary in Congress and my payment into Social Security is exactly the same as, as what Bill Gates pays into Social Security. So that ought to lift that uh, $120,000 cap and prorate it more to higher incomes. And you will, you'll bring a lot more revenue back into the Social Security Trust Fund. But right now, it's not in danger. Do you think that that uh, prorate change that you suggest will ever be adopted? Or is that a negative for the same reason that you just said? No tax increase on the Republican side. Well, when Social Security looked like it might be, have a problem in the I think it was the 80s. They did change Social Security. They raised the age limit, as you recall. It's now, I think, you know, when I qualified, and I was born in 1941. I had to be 65 plus a few months. I mean, most people get all the things, they, all the money they put into Social Security within about two years. And people who are on it uh, really depend upon it. What I see in the Social Security payments is the more money that you have earned in your life, the greater the Social Security return. Yet, People who have earned a great deal of money have a lesser need on the Social Security income upon which they rely after uh, their age 67. Yes, that's very, that's very true. It's disposable income for an awful lot of people in the higher income brackets. We're visiting with uh, Congressman Sam Farr. Uh, on December 19th, 2016, at the end of uh, Sam's last term in Congress, uh, there'll be a new member from the Monterey County, Santa Cruz County area in the central coast of California. When the new Congress convenes on January 3rd, 2017, uh, you're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Sam. Some of the underbelly of um, the life of members of Congress, there, there's two categories that I'd like you to comment on. And one is the amount of time that members of Congress spend making calls to donors in the district. Well, yes. Remember, first of all, you cannot do anything political on your government uh, salary or on your government equipment or your government offices. You really have to have a wall between being a, a public servant and being a, a political fundraiser candidate. So what you do is if you're going to make a phone call or even receive phone calls, you either have you have a separate phone, it's your own or your campaign's phone, not the government phone. And if you want to have a desk, you go, go somewhere in the Democratic and the Republican committees, which have buildings. You go down there and they have little cubicles where you can just sit and make uh, fundraising phone calls. You do it by establishing a party. You're going to have, you know, a cocktail party in Washington, and there's probably a dozen of these every single night, or a breakfast or a lunch or whatever way to get uh, your friends and lobbyists who support you uh, to come to these events. And they are uh, there's a limit on what they can give uh, by federal law. And all of that is very disclosed. I mean, it's very transparent. Uh, you have to file all of that all the time. You have to raise a million bucks. That's a lot of phone calls. When you call somebody, are you given background information? Oh, yes. Where does that um, support come from? Well, you have staff at the DCCC, and you, or you, fi- you hire a fundraising firm. There are a lot of uh, 
people out there, particularly young people, who are looking for jobs or have worked in campaigns who decide they want to be fundraisers. We hire people to staff us, to essentially give us the list and the history of giving and all that other stuff. The problem I find, Barry, is if you make 50 phone calls, you're going to get 47 answering machines. And what you're doing on the answering machine is leaving a message that I'm having a fundraiser on such and such a date. I hope you can make it. Very rarely do you get a live voice. I don't condemn this process. I think what what we need to do is we need to have public financing. And I think what you're going to find is that more and more people who are getting elected to Congress are independently, somewhat independently wealthy. It's expensive because what people don't realize is now you have to pay for your entire living expense while you're in Washington out of your own pocket. The government doesn't give you any per diem as they do other federal employees when they're away from their home office. So the cost of renting an apartment in Washington, the cost of food, taxis, all those things are out of your own pocket. I find it costs about $3,500 a month to live in Washington. I don't know, maybe different for other people. There are 43 rumored 43 members of Congress that are sleeping in their offices because they can't afford the rents because of financial situations at home, maybe sending kids to college or maybe they're going through a divorce or whatever. The economy, the Hill economy in, in Washington is, is, is just escalating. The cost of rents is one of the worst in the nation. What do you think is the appropriate way to manage that issue? I'd support it per diem, as they do for legislators and for local electeds when they're out of uh, away from home. Uh, that might be the easiest way. But I'm surprised that the private sector doesn't build um, apartment houses for just legislators, kind of a hotel for legislators. They have a weird lifestyle. I mean, they're coming and going all the time. And they don't spend a lot of time in their apartments. Let's talk about the going of a member of Congress. Uh, in your case, you announced a year or so before the election that you were not going to run again. So there was plenty of time for someone to run against you. But you were required to begin moving out of your office six months ago. How, how did that process work in the ultimate days of, of your tenure as a member of Congress? Well, all the members who retire, remember we have an election in early November, and all of the members, whether you are voluntarily retiring or involuntarily, you got defeated in the election, you've got to be out of your office by December 1st. And literally, they have almost a wrecking crew that comes into your office. I moved out on November 30th, and they had it recarpeted and painted within a day or two, and I dropped by there the other day, and it's all set up. We're still in office until January 3rd, so all the ones that are leaving for the month of December are put down in the in one of the uh, basements. They cut off a seating area in the cafeteria, and they build all these cubicles in there. They give you a, essentially a, a cubicle with a phone, a little teeny, tiny desk for a laptop, and that, that's it. And no staff. No, your staff is there, but then the question is how you know, my staff, we rotate it on a two-hour basis. But you don't have any printers, you don't have any things like that. Is that a good uh, way to run the government? I think they've thought it out pretty well logistically of how do you get the new ones in and get, because when Congress gets sworn in on January 3rd, the brand new Congress, uh, remember, I don't think people realize that when you start off after an election, you start the Congress all over again. Theoretically, as if one has never been there before. Um, 
because you have to adopt rules, you have to elect your officers of the House, including the Speaker, which is the first person you elect. So you will see that the um, they'll be sworn in uh, on on the third, and then they will have they will call the roll. It's the only time I've seen the roll called alphabetically, orally, because uh, we vote by electronic devices, but not on this case. And they just start with the A's and go all the way down. And each member stands up and says who they're going. They've been they've been nominated. You have people nominating, uh, like you would in a you know organizing a high school class or something. In this case, the Republicans are nominating Paul Ryan for speaker, and the Democrats are nominating Nancy Pelosi. Well, Sam Farr, um, it seems like uh, between now and two weeks from now, when the new Congress is. Uh, sworn in, you will not be returning. Uh, tell us about uh, your plans as a, a citizen. Well, Barry, you and I have been friends since the early 60s, and uh, I've been in elective office since 1975, so it's about 42 years of continuous elective office, and I've essentially stopped the uh, career, and it's, 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 uh, it's one of mixed emotions. It's one of sadness. Um, I'm 75 years old, and I decided that's a good age to retire and start spending time with your family. And so my plans are to be a full-time grandfather. I'm not looking to have a job in an office and have to you know, perform to somebody else's expectations. And fly across the country uh, twice a week. Yeah, I think that was one of the major decisions that happened long ago. That flight every week is really grueling. How do you think uh, Donald Trump will be accepted once he is sworn in? I think it'll be a very difficult uh, reception for him in Washington because of his lack of understanding of how government works and how the powers of government and the responsibilities of the executive versus legislative branch. I don't think he has an intellectual sense of of how it all works. It's It's a position of delegated authority by the Constitution. He has to propose, but only Congress can dispose. And there's very few things. I mean, this discussion with Barack Obama about his use of executive orders, that's the exception to where Congress has disposed. But the Congress has given more. The Constitution has given the president certain authorities that he can do without congressional action. But those authorities also have to be paid for uh, by approval by Congress. So it's, there's no easy way to do any of the things that... Uh, Trump has proposed doing that are controversial, and there's no assert, there's no certainty that Congress, even the Republicans, are going to give him the authorities or the money to do it. So I think it's going to be a very rocky uh, reception for him, and I think the country is going to be in big doubt for a long time as to who this, what what kind of a president we have in this country. It is it's going to be shocking to the world and to the nation. And I think one thing you ought to look at as to his popularity the day he is sworn in, because if his popularity is below 50%, and I don't think we've ever sworn in a president with popularity below that, that means that more than half the nation uh, doesn't accept him as president. Now, remember, every one of the Republicans in the House of Representatives is up for election in two years. Trump is not. So are you going to hook your future to his wagon if you don't think he's popular in your district. And so I think it's going to be a, a much more of a, a rocky road for the president coming into 
more so than even any other president in, in modern history. Looking um, a year or two into the future, uh, where do you think that rocky road will lead us? I don't know. That's probably the most discussed question among political scientists and media folks. Uh, we have a new game in town called the Internet, and uh, I think it plays a big role in whether we can really have a sense of a nation anymore. Uh, we've always had national pride and a, and a feeling of uh, a national sense and a national honor. And if you have a president that's unpopular in his own nation, that doesn't is not going to make him popular in any other nation either. So you have essentially America at risk, and it's done for by, by back to that original discussion we had when we started this program that all politics being local, it's these congressional districts. So what I tell my friends who are in despair about Trump's election is, hey, wait a minute, concentrate on your around here. I mean, you live in a community, make that community what you would love the world to be. Uh, you live in a great state of California, a very progressive state that has a lot of, of wealth and can afford to spend the money on to do the new things that are ne- needed to be done. And now make that make make your community, your your city, your county. Uh, the perfect place to live for all peoples and carry out those goals locally. I think we can do that. I think the nation's cities are, are, are extremely strong. And, you know, if they're unified, they may be stronger than Washington. One of the things that's being discussed uh, around the nation are uh, sanctuary cities. And there's a threat or a fear Uh, propounded by people who may be opposed to that, that uh, if a city calls itself a sanctuary city and protects immigrants contrary to the U.S. law, uh, they would uh, lose federal funding. What's your response to that? Well, you know as a lawyer that there's no legal basis for being a sanctuary city. So it's essentially a declaration of attitude rather than any kind of legal... uh, ability. And what essentially you have is the cities are fighting this concept that the federal government is saying, we want you to report anybody you arrest at the local level for any reason uh, who are undocumented. And the cities are, police are responding, hey, wait a minute, that's not our goal. Our goal is to be community friendly, what we call community policing. We want to be part of those neighborhoods and be friends of the people who live in the neighborhoods because that's the way we keep the peace. And we don't go around, we don't know whether a person's documented or not. There's no re- there's no card that anybody carries, including members of Congress, that says you're a citizen of the United States. So that's a job for the federal government and for the law enforcement of migration called ICE. So sanctuary cities are essentially saying that. Um, you know, that's your responsibility, not ours. And uh, we don't have to carry it out. And they're right. Now, some members of Congress are saying, oh, that attitude is so, um, we give you money, and therefore, uh, if you're not going to follow our mandates, uh, we're going to withhold the money from you. I don't think it's going to be possible. And I don't think that the federal government or Congress is going to be able to require uh, cities who have that attitude to be penalized, because I think the public accepts the concept of community policing and reporting People who they think may be undocumented, profiling people, is so un-American that it just will not fly. 
I think there'll be a lot of political problems in this debate, but I think in the end, uh, and maybe cities shouldn't brag so much that they're uh, uh, sanctuary cities. I don't think that's actually. I think that that's, you don't need to to call yourself a sanctuary city in order to be one. You just have to have a local uh, policing attitude, and I think most chiefs of police that I've talked to don't support uh, the reporting of people who are pulled over for a taillight or whatever. Do you think that there may be a uh, call for a national identity card? Well, I, you know, I think we ought to have it anyway. I'm, I'm, I think most nations of the world have it, and it's, we, have, we have some problems. I mean, this country right now, when I was on the Homeland Security, I think they were told me there were 7,000 legal IDs in the United States. So when you're going through that TSA at the airport and they want you to show your ID, they've actually, there's 7,000 different cards that one can show that are legal ID because we have no national card. You probably the only national card you have is your social security card, and that's not uh, any proof of who you are. Nor is it recommended to be carried by the social security system. And you don't have to be a citizen to have that. And it has the oddity of having your social security number right on it in plain view, which um, if it's obtained by somebody who wants to steal your ID, uh, they've got a pretty significant opportunity there. Well, when you were a Peace Corps volunteer in Peru, you probably had to carry a, a thing they called a cedula. We had to do that when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Colombia. It was a card that the Colombian government had gave you. It just has your name. It's your ID, and it says it's an ID card. And that's all. But it's a nationally issued ID card. And most countries have that. Well, Sam, um, I look forward to future commentaries with you about how our government uh, bends and turns and melds and molds in the future. And... The closing question is about a book. Is there one you can recommend to our listeners? You always ask me, and I'm trying to think, what am I reading right now? Because I always pick up books and start them and then lay them down and pick up another. Um, If you love anything about California history, Three Years in Monterey by Walter Colt. And the time that you're addressing then would be um, around 1849. Well, I think it's very interesting to study early California history around 1849. I mean, you had a shift of governments from Mexico, uh, from Spain to Mexico, and then uh, Mexico to the U.S. Uh, without any war uh, here. There was, a, there was a war with Mexico and the importance of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and all those times, because that is essentially the foundation for how California began as a state and the rule of law that California adopted in its state constitution, which had a lot of progressive things in it that no other state constitution had, like the right for women to, to own property and have property rights that could be inherited. Uh, no other state had that. What was that beginning all about? Because it really shows how California started differently than other states, and to this day is so much different than other states, including how we voted in the last election. Well, Sam Farr, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you, Barry. It's great. Our friendship's gone over great years, and you've been able to watch me go from who's who now to who's he. Sam Farr will complete his last term as a member of Congress after 23 years representing the Central Coast of California. His last day is January 1st, 2017. Sam is a strong advocate of the Peace Corps and a protector of the oceans, 
The book Sam Farr recommends is Three Years in California by Walter Colton, published December 31st, 1855. This program was recorded on December 19th, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.